You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to almost season three, almost episode 100 of The Guidepost. Tony here. Um, obviously, want to thank uh, Costa for being our awesome sponsor. Remind everyone, if they have any questions or comments, to send it into comments at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. And if we read it on the air, uh, you will win yourself a pair of brand new Costa. So everyone is going to be super happy when they're listening to this, because you're not going to hear my voice very much in this podcast. I am so excited because, man, do we have a show for y'all uh, tonight. Um, first, we have Blaine Chocolate, who's been on a bunch of these podcasts with us lately. Uh, and very special guest, none other than Larry Dahlberg, Hunt for Big Fish. So Blaine, Larry, I'm putting her on mute. I am merely here to make sure that there are no technical difficulties. Go crazy, gentlemen. Well, thank you, Tony. Appreciate it. I am super excited to have my good buddy, the man, the myth, the legend, Larry Dahlberg. How you doing? Well, I'm doing really good, Blaine. Uh, you're the one who ought to be, ought to be asking you. You just got off the water after a hard day of musky guiding. Yeah. <laughs> That's just another... <laughs> Another lousy day in paradise. How, how are you doing right now? What are you up to up there? What's going on in your world? Well, I'm happy to report that uh, the snow started melting a little bit today. But uh, I'm in uh, Minnesota. I'm north of Minneapolis about an hour. And uh, we've we've had so much snow this winter, it's just insane. So I've just been going crazy. and I uh, wanted to get out of here pretty soon. Well, yeah, I've been fortunate to be to your place, and uh, we, we've been talking back and forth like we always do, kind of popping ideas back and forth about what fish see, what fish do. But one of the cool things that I love about what you're always doing is you're, you're, you're still a kid at heart. And uh, I asked you a couple of weeks ago what you've been up to, and you told me you built a, uh, an igloo, and you've been hanging out in the igloo <laughs> during the days. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I made an igloo. <laughs> that's right is it, is it still there or is it starting to melt uh it's still there what happened it got warm and melted a little bit then it got really cold again so it's now it's like a bomb shelter <laughs> well i hear you have you uh have you um been doing any kind of lore designs here lately i know i mean i get in what i call your laboratory I, we all have them i've got mine downstairs but Nothing like yours. You got you've been tinkering with anything uh, that we need to know about or not know about. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of stuff that I, you probably don't. Uh, well, I'll show you, but I don't. Uh, uh, I figured out some pretty cool stuff. I got to show you. Yeah. Well, I, I hopefully we can get together sooner than later. Um, yeah. Generally, most people don't know this, but Larry and I try to get together every year. He comes down, fishes with me during musky season. And that really brings me to my one of my first things about what I love about Larry. And um, we always talk about keyholes. And uh, one of the few things that 
I think people overlook, in my opinion, that uh, fly fishers, they're always looking through keyholes. And that's one of the things that you told me years ago when we started talking about um, not looking through that keyhole, but looking through a big open wide window or door and how if you're looking through those keyholes that you really missed a big picture. And uh, well, if you look through enough of them at the same time, you get a 3D view. Otherwise, all you do is get a one dimensional view all of your whole life. You know, just look through as many keyholes as your lifetime allows you from as many different angles. All right. Well, I know the, one of my favorite stories of yours is uh, when you told me when you were a kid, it brings me back to when I was starting to learn this. And, you know, I, I, I was very fortunate at an early age to meet the right people in my life. But I know you grew up in a totally different era. And, you know, the world back then growing up in Minnesota, where, where you showed me when I came up to visit you, um, one of these stories you told me about being a kid and one of those aha moments and climbing trees and, and seeing what fish, what they do and how they react to things you do when you throw at them, like different food sources and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I find that super fascinating and I would love for you to share that story. Uh, if you remember that story that we, we spoke about, like when I think you told me you were climbing up in a tree at maybe seven or eight, nine years old and um, feeding fish and seeing how they reacted, what you were throwing at them. Um, that to me tells a lot about who you are and what, and one of the greatest things that I love about you and admire about you is how your mind works and you always want to figure out what the next best thing is, you know, and I've kind of tried to pattern my career off that as well. So could you, you could elaborate a little bit about that story? Well, I, uh, hmm. I just couldn't see unless I climbed a tree. They hadn't invented uh, polarized glasses yet. So you couldn't see what's going on unless you got up in the air a little bit. That's all. But, yeah. I like climbing but, trees as a kid. I was like a gorilla as a little kid. I, we had trees in the backyard and I'd, I'd go like from tree to tree, like a monkey. I was the only kid who could do it. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I just climbed trees. Yeah. I could see a tree. Let's go climb. I mean, it was like nothing for to climb a tree. And so you fill your pockets with uh, frogs and crayfish and whatever is around it. Climb the tree, leaning out over the part of the river you can't see the bottom, and start throwing stuff in there and see what comes up. You know, it doesn't seem like that's that original of an idea to me. Uh, well, that, that's the what makes you great. Is that uh, a lot of people, you know, what seems e easy to you is not so, you know, it's not so common as Lefty would say. Remember that it's like common sense is not so common. Um, yeah, I think Plato you know, said that. Yeah, is that where you got yeah, it? Yeah, but, Plato or Socrates. Yeah, he said that what you need is uncommon sense. Yeah, right. That's the yeah. truth. Yeah, uh, that's a good um, one. Well, I do want to ask. I want to talk. I mean, you know, I love designing stuff myself, but uh, I mean, for you and being able to bounce ideas off of you all these years, and um, really understanding that I really don't know anywhere near, not even close to the things that you've seen and done. Um, and part of that looking through keyholes is and what in your mind makes a great angler. Uh, um, and I, I think I know the answer to this. I, I, I feel like partly a great angler, they have to kind of be able to know a little bit about everything. And, and, and that, what I meant earlier about the keyhole thing, I want to elaborate a little bit about that is, you know, you love experimenting with different types of fishing. It doesn't, and you kind of choose the appropriate 
tactic to match the situation at hand. And you're not afraid to to use live bait. You're not afraid to use plugs or whatever or fly when it's necessary. Um, at what point in your career did you decide that you wanted to expand on the, all these areas in your, I guess, life? I mean, I know you. You. we could talk about this a little bit later, all the different types of things you've done in your career. You know, I mean, I, it's pretty amazing in my mind that, you know, being a, a rep and, you know, doing the writing and all that kind of stuff. But at what point in your life did, did you feel like going away from the guiding that where you started at a very early age and wanted to kind of expand on that? At what point did you really kind of feel like this is the path I'm going to take? Was there like a moment in your life where you felt like this is where I'm going to go now? Hmm. Now, well, yes and no. I mean, as you go through life, you uh, have certain opportunities and choices that you make. And uh, I, right when I got out of college, uh, the Vietnam War was was happening. My best friend had just been killed. I had a, some different options, uh, uh, but uh, they had a, a hiring freeze on. Uh, Jimmy Carter, I think, was president the, at the time that I had just, just gotten out. And I was going to actually go to work for the 3M company and uh, with the fly line stuff. Uh, a couple of my clients, well... Well, the president of 3M and then the guys that ran the fly line division and all that stuff. I had been clients for years, uh, but there was a hiring freeze on. They said, go get some retail experience. So I, I did that. And uh, that just led to, uh, I guess, uh, the rep business. And that led to one thing just led to another. So uh, I don't know if I was a conscious decision. And then part of it too, is having to raise a family and you got to make a living, you know, and it's, uh, not so easy. Uh, but I went back to guiding uh, part time when I was in the, you know, started a rep business. And that after I got into the media business, then uh, uh, I gave my rep business to the, a fellow that worked with me. So I, I don't know if I made any decisions. There's an old thing, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any path will take you there. Uh, but I've always been drawn. I've always been drawn to, to fishing. So I've uh, stayed, stayed with that. Uh, and yeah, um, you mean me being mostly a fly, fly type of guy, I love all aspects of fishing, but for you, you know, um, one of the big things when I was younger and, and was watching your show and watching you catch the muskie on a fly, that really was that kind of aha moment. It's like, I can do that. You know, um, for you, you know, I know muskies have been a big part of your life forever. I mean, since you were a little kid and you've told me some stories about, some of your first experiences with it, but, um, I love, I love, I love the idea and how, you know, I want to, I don't know if many people have really understand where the the diver came from, the Dahlberg diver. Um, I love that story. I would love for you to, if you could share that, um, with us right now, I would love to, I'd love everybody to kind of hear that and see where your mind was back then. And, uh, you know, that's an iconic that's an iconic fly that's been around for a very long time and it's still catching fish all over the world it's uh it's such a really people know you for for your all your different lures with the walker plopper and your mr wiggly and all that but for me the, the diver 
And when I first saw that and seeing you catching muskies on that, that was just so, so cool to me. So if you could share that with us, I'd really appreciate it. Well, um, I, it's hard to say where to start. I, my dad uh, gets 99.9% of the any credit that I have in terms of the way uh, I look at angling. Uh, start, I mean, before I was allowed to go, I had to cast under a swing set into a box, uh, <laughs> you know, nine out of 10 times and so on. And, and so it, what he had to do, he made sure that I understood the mechanics of the whole thing. And I was willing to, uh, you know, do, do what you have to, to do. Uh, but anyway, um, he had a fellow that he was fishing with, uh, who was a fishing partner with a guy named Frank Suick. Uh, this fellow was named Keck and, uh, he lived somewhere around central Wisconsin where uh, Suick is from. And uh, he brought this lure up, and uh, we'd get muskies to chase our topwater baits, and then he'd throw this suic in, would you know go down, and it had kind of a side to side a little bit to it, and then it would slowly rise up and uh, swim forward. And this uh, diving, rising motion that that suic had really cranked these uh, fish up, and I thought that was pretty cool. So I was trying to create a, a fly uh, that would do that. Uh, I had created this other. Uh, material that is now known as a flashaboo and i was trying to find ways to you know incorporate that into various designs and i was trying to come up with a diving rising design uh and i because and i had this fish that i was trying to catch uh a largemouth bass big one shallow water and i could he just follow my poppers and just you know how they stop and kind of sit and breathe a little bit and you watch their pectoral fins kind of stick out and they're going and they just don't commit and uh anyway um i i thought of this idea of using the uh deer hair uh in the shape of the diver because when you accelerate it it folds back so you can cast it but it'll also you know dive obviously and come back up without going backwards that's the key the suing dives down and then when it comes back up it goes forwards it doesn't bounce back that's what most buoyant things do in the water and then as they their uh, specific gravity approaches that of water as you pull them they'll actually slide and glide but um on a on something that's buoyant that's a hard thing to achieve the suic does it with the tail and the shape of it and stuff but anyway that's what i was going for and anyway, I can remember it was really early one morning. I'd clipped out the shape and I, I ran out of the end of my dock, little short dock. I flip it in the water with the fly rod and goes, bloop, bloop, yes. And I ran it and got in my boat. I took off and I uh, uh, got into this little corner. It's a, where the, a little wood river comes into a big wood lake. First cast, this thing comes out, made a wake, and I'm going, bloop, bloop. And I went, bloop, and just dove it in front of me. He just rolled on it, barely made a boil. And I caught him. It was a six pound, seven ounce largemouth. And I uh, threw the fly in my fly box, got back up to the, I had to guide that day. And I was guiding the president of 3M company. His name is Bert Cross, really a good guy, but he's a sloppy caster. And uh, he had his buddy with him. I can't remember his name. And I had given him uh, one of these, a fly with a flashable wing that we called a tinsel fly. Now we call it a flash dancer. And this guy had only fished smallmouth a few times and so on. And he ends up catching what we, a three and a half pounder. That's an honor roll smallmouth. And uh, I don't think Bert had ever 
caught one that size. So he wasn't on the honor roll, but this guest catches one and he's pouting about it. And I, so I end up pulling him up this rapids up the mouth of the, the river into this corner that's always just killer good. And here, cast in there, and he's throwing it fly, whatever it was. And man, not even a bite. Here, try this thing. And he looks at it like, what the uh, is this? And just tie it on. And, you know, and it's kind of wet. And he flips it out and it goes gloop, and catches a bag in the current, you know, with the line of the fly kind of bubbles. It goes underwater and pow, this big bass hits it. And like I said, he's fishing with a 10 weight and he just cranked it and spring, the fly comes flying back. Uh, I remember I tied it on a, on a Aberdeen hook or you could bend the hook, I think with your hands and the fly landed on the wrong side of the boat. And uh, his, he was spinning around in his chair to start retrieving line, blam, another one hit it. And uh, he <laughs> caught that one and he turned, he said, Larry, I think you might have something here. <laughs> <laughs> you think I would say, I would say so. But that's, Wait, that's, I, hold on a minute. I, I got to pop in here for a second. You created Flashaboo. Yeah, I did not uh, know that. Now you do. Oh yeah, I, I have a, <laughs> I have like a drawer filled with like every color in the rainbow. Of well, here's the story. Right the me. story of Flashaboo um, might be an interesting one. Um, when I was really really young, um, I, like once a week or at least once every other week, um, this man named Tom Daniels. Uh, and uh, his wife, June, would come. And he was the, uh, uh, you've heard of the ADM company, Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, and anyway, they made a bet every day for the first, the most, and the biggest, smallmouth, and fly fishing. And uh, when I started fishing with Mrs. Daniels, she still had, she had never caught a fish in her life. She'd never caught a, a bass. And she had about a, I think it was like a, maybe an eight foot, eight and a half foot, seven weight Orvis. I forget uh, what but it was, you know, it was all right rod and everything, but she just would flop this thing around and, uh, you know, don't only go a few feet. And every day she had to pay $3 at the end of the day. And I thought it was just terrible. And she wanted to fish with me because she didn't like the other guides. I could, you know, carry in a conversation with her about, you know, whatever she wanted to talk about. And anyway, it drove me nuts. And so I, I would try to spin her, you know, like in the old days, we'd throw spinners up with the fly rod. And uh, man, it was dangerous, even with just a short amount of line out. And uh, then she'd be, she smoked cigarettes and uh, she'd put the thing down in the boat and let it hang. And then she'd get, you know, you'd be going over shallow water and that spinner would be hung up unless you were really watching all the time. Mrs. Daniels would get into trouble. So anyway, um, um, I grew up really, really poor. And my mom uh, couldn't afford a lot, didn't spend a lot of money on Christmas decorations. And the first year that you could buy really cheap tinsel, mylar tinsel, she bought it. And uh, I can remember helping trim the tree. And I reached up real high to put a little piece of tinsel on there. And then I watched, I, I missed, and it floated all the way down. I looked at it and I said, aha, that's the spinner for Mrs. Daniels. I'll make a big wad of that in the back of a, yeah, that'll work. Yeah, I'd actually, yeah. So anyway, I put some away and that's uh, spring. I uh, got a hook and I put some body of cork on it so that hook would just barely sink because I didn't want it to get hung up. And then I uh, put some of this gold tinsel on it and then a little bit of a deer hair type 
got clipped to your head, put it in my box. When Mrs. Daniels showed up, we took off down to this pool called the Big Rock Pool, tied that thing on, had her throw it out, and I just would roll around it. She started catching bass like crazy. And um, uh, she didn't know what, the first mini that bit, she didn't know what to do when they bit. So I just pull on the oars because she didn't know you're supposed to jerk. She'd never had a bite before. And anyway, uh, then she st uh, started tearing off the heads of matches uh, to keep track of how many fish. And then uh, she ran out of matches and started tearing the edge of the matchbook. And then she wanted a cigarette, but we didn't have any matches. So we went down to the point of the island where we would normally eat lunch and we waited for the other boats to come and she's jumping up and down. They came and well, we had, we caught the most that day and the first, don't think we had the biggest. Um, but from that day on, uh, she always never had to pay three bucks again. So fast forward a bunch of years and I'm now I'm tying, uh, the, uh, diver head was a way to get flashaboo on a under you know a surface fly and uh dave whitlock had come up to fish with me and uh we fished two or three pools with his flies and man there was it was like zippity doodah not a bite and and i was looking at me kind of rolling his eyes back you know what's what and I said, man, I don't know here. I'm gonna just drop the hook. Uh, I don't usually do this, you know, when I'm guiding. But if something isn't right, you know, I usually, you know, I might make a few casts and try to figure out what's going on. If you don't mind. So I dropped the hook and rigged up a fly rod and put on a, a diver with a, a flashaboo tail, and uh, flung it out this thing. I'm stripping it across, whang, and I catch a bass and catch another one and another one. And the Whitlock says, God, what is that, a trick fly line? And I said, no, it's a diver, diving fly. He says, what? And he's looking at it and going, wow, that's that's really something. What is that stuff you got on the back? I said, oh, it's this uh, Mylar tinsel that we, uh, and then we had developed it. I had shown it to another guy uh, that I'd taken, a professional fisherman who had a lure company. And then uh, he, and, he had, it's the tinsel tail lure company is the name of it. And we had refined this stuff. So it wasn't mylar. It's a reinforced uh, polyester that is uh, real uh, strong and, you know, holds together and the sun doesn't fall apart in any way. So anyway, that's what it was. And, and he says, man, this is, you know, you got to share this with the world. And he said, I'll make you a deal. Um, if you can come up with a name for that stuff and a way to package it, um, I'll help you promote it. And uh, you just give me the rights to the diver fly for a year. I said, yeah, okay. So that's that's how that got started. That is awesome. That is that is yeah. wow. Yeah. So I mean, I actually invented a machine to pack to spool and package and you know do it. Yeah, that goes back a long ways. What long ways? Seventies, early seventies. Wow. Wow, I did I didn't I knew the Whopper Plopper and obviously the Dahlberg diver and everything else. I did not I did not know about Flashaboo. And Blaine, do you mind if I ask Larry one question? No, but go ahead. You have traveled <clears throat> extensively. And I have not traveled nearly as much as you, but probably more than most. Um if there's one place you could go back to. You know, mm. if there's if there's mm. just one place Impossible. that you could just punch a ticket tomorrow, and if not one, 
what what would be the top three if you know it's if because i i don't want to pin, pin you in a corner and make you pick one but just to the, the place that was just all that you know it had it all it had the it had the fish the scenery you know everything that just winds you up what what would those three places be probably one would be uh uh, the reservoir on the Nile River, uh, Lake Nasser, uh, where we bumped into the, all these great big monster Nile perch. Uh, but that's not the same anymore because the uh, couple of people were along. They were connected to commercial fishing. And uh, I showed them something that I should not have showed them. And those fish aren't there now. But I'd like to go back to the back to 90 what was it 96 or 98 or whenever when i first went over there and it was just unbelievable uh, unbelievable fish that were eight seven eight feet long you know bunches of them um i i remember that show it's pretty amazing i i remember the show too blaine he was trolling for him in the show part of the show he was trolling for him big mm -hmm. yeah, big were, build were, uh crankbaits yeah. Yeah, it was in the you know, springtime. It was about this time of year. Water temps were about 60. But we found them. The guy that I fished with, I was really kind, uh, actually, on the show. Uh, we went three days with him running the boat, and we didn't get a bite. And I told him, you know, hey, if we fail and it's your fault, you know, you're running the boat, it's your fault. If we fail and I'm running the boat, it'll be it's my fault. So maybe you should let me run the boat. And then I put on my own depth finder. But he used to think that there was they lived like one here, one there, uh, that there were like lions and they would hide behind a rock and then come out, eat their prey and drag it back. Uh, lonely creatures, uh, you know. And then I showed him that they live in big giant schools, but you have to look in the right place adjacent to the river channel. He didn't understand uh, that you have to find the river channel first. Sounds very similar to muskies. <laughs> it's a fit, it, all the fish are exactly fish are fish everywhere you go. What is different is the environment that they live in. And what the real mystery in unlocking any of angling is, is having a grip, a really good grip on what the environmental options are for the creatures that you're looking for. And then being able to figure out some tactical uh, scheme to get at them. You know, which brings us back to, the, you know, the fly fishing, this, that, the other. To me, they're just a bunch of tools. They're all, as a little kid, uh, getting back to my dad, we had a fly rod. He had a bait casting rod. Uh, he didn't use live bait and he didn't use spinning tackle, but a fly rod and a conventional rod. Here's something that I can cast something that has no weight. Here's something I cast stuff that has weight. These are two tools, period. And that's why I've always looked at all of the uh, stuff. Uh, fly fishing has always been fun just because it's fun to cast. It's fun to wing line, even if you don't get a bite, uh, you know, other than maybe, you know, I'm not going to go blind cast on a beach somewhere for a striped bass, but, you know, pot shotting underneath trees for a snook or a smallmouth or something. Hey, that's really fun. No, I, I do. I mean, that takes me to some of that stuff. Like when you approach fishing, you, you talk about three or four things, tactics, mechanics, execution. Stuff like strategy, that. I mean, yeah, strategy, mechanics, tactics, that's it, period. And then you have fish you can see, fish you can't see, okay? If you can see them, there they are. It becomes strictly tactical and mechanical. If you can't see them, you've got to figure out some kind of a strategy, 
so that you can uh, rub the silver off a lottery card in time to win the prize, you know, that's about it. Uh, you just have some anglers that uh, will go find a spot and sit there and watch the river run by, and they're happy to fish that hole and watch the river run by. I can only do that for just a minute, uh, even lunch, sitting, stopping for lunch and drive me nuts. I want to be in the river floating in it. I want to be in the lake. I want to be moving and trying to understand like a blind man with my eyes shut, with my fingers feeling of the walls and the, and the, and the desk and the chair and the floor and, you know, what the hell's going on around here. You got to know what, what's, what's what, otherwise you're just, otherwise, you know, existential emptiness. Sure. Well, I mean, that's that's true. And uh, I mean, one of the things that you've really talked to me about, I mean, especially when I was trying to put together some presentations and trying to try to help people understand a little bit about, especially in the fly world, about fly design and how you approach fish. And it's like you said, I mean, all these different places that you go in the world. You, you take a little bit back from each one of those areas and you learn a lot from that particular fish species or that environment. And it may make you a better angler in your home waters too. And, uh, yeah. And, and that leads me to this. I mean, you know, one of the biggest pain in the ass fish in the world to catch is a permit. And, you know, I love your story about you observing permit um, and, and, and some of the things that you see, and we could talk about some Doug Hannon stuff here a little bit later. I mean, cause I love that too, but, uh, mm -hmm. can you share your permit story a little bit about some of the things you observe? This is again, observation is key to success. I mean, you, you, if you could see what's going on, I mean, that's part of unlocking that, that puzzle or opening that, that window, you know, um, I just, I love that about you. And I've always tried to in my career, tried to kind of keep that open mind and try to be able to see things. And if I can't see it, try to figure out what else I could do to make sure that I'm understanding what's going on there. Yeah, the permit thing, uh, we were, uh, well, first of all, you, permit are not necessarily a fish of the flats. A lot of people think of them as that, but uh, they're more of a, a deep water animal. And there's certain times of the year when they can gather uh, in certain places in incredible numbers. Uh, one such place was a spot that uh, they called the Blue Hole. Uh, a fellow named J.C. Wells, famous captain, uh, one of the best anglers, best captains that's ever lived anywhere in history probably, um, uh, was the first guy to fish it. His relatives discovered it. And it's a, a place where a bunch of fresh water comes in surrounded by coral out in the Gulf. And uh, we come popping out there and uh, he told me there's a lot of permit. And uh, uh, I had uh, my kids with me and wife and a bunch of people, you know, we weren't filming. And uh, uh, about a million crabs. And I had a whole bunch of fly tying stuff. And I also had every single fly, every single permit fly that there was at the time. Uh, Jake Jordan had them all in stock at uh, the, uh, remember his, his store at Ferro Blanco? I mean, Jake yep. had everything. So I had like one of each of every permit fly. So uh, anyway, we get out and there's a, all these permit are up on the surface and you can't, you could, a live permit on a, on a hook, you can't throw it out. You can't go 15 seconds without a, they, the kids would have, you know, doubles and triples. 
So I got up on the, I climbed up on the top of the top, top, top of the uh, bridge, you know, on the top of the boat. And I just started watching and I, I throw these flies, you know, that, that he uh, had and the fish would, you know, they swim up and look at them and it's like, yeah, right. Not even, a, a, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they, <coughs> no reaction. So I started take, you know, I could throw a live crab in and I mean, they'd be on it like a instantly. And so I started just taking the crabs apart. Uh, and well, first I just made a dead crab. I just made him dead and perfectly intact, threw him in and they rush him and they just kind of waver, whoop, 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 and it did not get eaten. And I, I was pretty much astonished. So I you know, did it again and I, I couldn't even believe it. Uh, maybe he got eaten when he got deeper, but he did not get eaten like the live crabs got eaten. So I started taking the crabs apart. You know, let's remove one leg. Let's remove one. And we've already taken the pinchers off, of course. And I found that uh, they would, if I could totally dismember the crab, as long as I left one swimmerette intact, and he would continue to sink at a nice diagonal, not whiffly waffly, you know, like a, you know, feather floating or whatever, you know, waving, but a and a diagonal and then maybe another how they if you watch a crab they've got these weird movements in the water they're unlike anything else and anyway with one swimmer up uh, going and he would continue on that steady uh diagonal like uh sinking direction everyone would would get eaten and uh, i thought that was rather interesting so i made a fly that uh was terrible to cast that uh, was made out of uh, a little bit of uh, flat lead and a little bit of uh, marine tex epoxy. And I can't remember if I used sheep wool or some other synthetic to, that I squashed together to make a flat body that would have that, you know, uh, sink in that manner. And then I made a little tail out of a uh, dental dam, uh, like a Mr. Twister tail. The first one I made, uh, and I was making it right up on top of the thing as I'm watching these fish. Uh, the first one, the tail was too long, and the fish came after, they wouldn't eat it. And then I just shortened the tail, and uh, I just cast it and just slack line it, and it would sink at that diagonal with a little wiggling thing in the back, and they ate it, ate it instantly every time. It was horrible to cast. <laughs> <laughs> that's... that's yeah, but that to me, that's that's what makes you great. I mean, you 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 were willing to take that next step. You you're willing to do what it takes to figure out what these what makes these fish tick. And uh, to me, that's that's what it's all about. And um, people ask me a lot, you know, what what made, gave you that idea? And it's a lot of times the simple answer is it's a necessity to understand how to catch the damn things, right? I mean, it's like. You really they want to eat. understand? <laughs> they eat, <laughs> you know. Yeah, <laughs> they gotta eat. They eat. Yeah, yep. they gotta. That's right. They do. I know you've taken Larry for muskie in Virginia. Have you? Have you taken him for snakeheads yet? I have not. I, I've, I've told him about it, and I really would like to do that. Hopefully, we can get that done this year. Um, he's got an open invitation. I think we're going to try to get it done. Maybe. Uh, late august or early september you can if you, you want to talk about a maddening fish on the fly I, I don't know if you've run into them in your travels in their native territory 
but they have. No, uh, I've never. I have they, not fished for them. No. They are. They are something. Something to behold. You can get them. You can pick them off like a fry ball. They'll protect their young, and that's pretty easy. But to get one that's like laid up or or cruising, man, I mean, you gotta. It is. It is not. You got to be a little bit lucky, and uh, <clears throat> it's Larry. There, they can breathe air like a tarpon. Um, you know, they'll pop their head right out of the water and just take a gulp of air. Uh, I've been I've been walking along a shoreline and stepped on a, a dry leaf, and had one pop its head up and look right at me because it it heard it heard me. You know, it felt with its lateral line, it felt me step on the leaf and just swim away real slow and backwards too because they can they'll just use their fins and you just see them slide away backwards and it's uh it's a maddening fish you know how bowfin larry how bowfin use their pecs and then their 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 fins and they'll just start doing that tickling thing mm -hmm. uh snake snakeheads are basically the same creature you know they're they're uh they're ve they're uh very aggressive feeders but very um aware of their environment um they're really interesting. I've enjoyed targeting them and trying to get to understand them a lot. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think, I think you'll really enjoy it. I mean, they love frogs. Um, you, you'd have a blast feeding them divers and frog. The first, I first one that. I caught was on a first one I caught on the fly was a Dahlberg diver. I've had a lot of uh, correspondence with people that fish with those with uh, divers. I've got a friend in Florida that's Mr. Snakehead. So I've those are bullseye. <laughs> Those are those are bullseye snakehead in Florida. Mm. We ours are northern, oh, and it's okay. like comparing a chihuahua <laughs> to a pit bull. Oh, um, our our northern snakehead are very similar to the your wolffish that you used to fish for. They look they look they almost identical. Like they have great pretty yes. darn pretty darn close. You don't want to you don't want to put your hand anywhere near them, um, and you know because they breathe air. When you yank them out of the water, they don't care. You you throw them up on the bank and pick them up ten minutes later, and they'll try to bite you. Like it's a, I'm telling you, man, it's a, it is a crazy. Uh, Blaine and I talk about them all the time. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go too deep into it, but just I'm listening to you talk about watching fish, the permit, the smallmouth, the muskie, everything, and I'm just, I'm looking at Blaine and I'm like, get this man fishing for snakeheads because he'll 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 lose his marbles when he sees when he sees these things and how they behave in a lot of respects it's a pretty darn perfect freshwater freshwater uh fly fish it's because it, not none of them are ever easy i mean you can what get a reaction have, strike what effect do they have on the other fish that were using that environment before they got there so you know larry that's that is an excellent question so um you know where Blaine and I live in the mid Atlantic. So I live on, I live on the Eastern shore in between the ocean and the Chesapeake Bay. Blaine lives a little bit more central Virginia. And, um, you know, where we live, it's kind of like the land of invasive species anyway. So, you know, largemouth bass are not native to here. Um, pretty much smallmouth bass are not native to here. My, my area in Maryland, not native. Um, so, when when snakeheads were introduced 20 years ago they made them out to kind of be the fourth horseman of the apocalypse and they destroy everything 
and there's been a ton of science done on them and basically you know what we found is they've kind of integrated into the system the fishing pressure on them has been really high if you're a frog or a killifish or you know uh mud minnow bull minnow whatever you want to call them you're gonna die if you're around a snakehead um you know that's but but they live in places that other fish don't want to live Yeah, the fact that they're oxygen uh, breathers gives them a there's a niche that oh. wasn't being used probably yeah i mean they look everything well, has I, an I can, impact but yeah Blaine i can, and I, I, have, I can add to this yeah. uh, um i did an article for fly fisherman a couple years ago about snakeheads and their impact or negative impact on the fishery um and i spoke to the main guy that um in the united states on snakeheads about um if they're a negative impact in in the fisheries that they've been introduced in and he said they've over 20 years of their research they have found zero impact negative impact in on that snakeheads have on any any bait fish any other predatory fish the, the matter of fact in the the recorded history of the areas that snakeheads were being studied and found those fisheries are healthier than they've ever been so Larry, the, the, the one study that says that they had an impact was probably one of the most poorly done studies. And I have my, my career, my day-to-day -day job is to look at studies, right? And it, it did a, it, it's Blackwater, uh, refuge just South of where I live. And there are, there are a lot of snakehead in there because, you know, the, it's just, it's just a marsh, just a shallow tidal marsh. Um, and they saw a big drop in, you know, crappie and bass and a bunch of other species. But there's been a lot of saltwater intrusion. And that'll drive those fish out pretty quick. So, you know, you have to look at multiple studies in multiple areas. And in Blaine's neck of the woods, they're not having a huge impact believe it or not i mean you you in minnesota the thing that's probably our biggest concern invasive species wise are blue catfish um there's an estimated over a hundred million blue catfish in the chesapeake bay right now they are not native um they're becoming you know semi-salt tolerant uh with all of our anadromous fish our herring our shad the small stripers, everything that spawns in these freshwater rivers, it's like a gauntlet of if you want if you wanted to catch a 50 or 60 pound blue cat anywhere in the world as fast as possible, it would be here. You could I I, I could if you came here tomorrow, I would put you on a 50 pound blue catfish in 10 minutes. They're everywhere and they're like a nightmare. We I caught one on a I caught one on a spook in three feet of water, 15 parts salinity, you know, half ocean salinity came up and smashed a spook, 18 pounder. Wow. Wow. And we were, we were, you I know, know fishing for big stripes. They've been dumping them in there in a whole lot of water, but I'm hoping that might be a solution for the carp. 
Yeah, there's so I have actually have a, a buddy of mine runs U, uh, USGS in West Virginia, USG uh, Geological Services, and they're they're looking at some pretty in, innovative ways to get rid of those Asian carp for you guys. I think help is on the way with that, but I'm yeah, I'm done big, talking about invasive. Yeah, oh, it's huge. I mean, they're yeah, they're they're a nightmare. Yeah, yeah nightmare nightmare species blaine get to talking about him and yep. him and the cool stuff and not snakeheads yep. anymore i had to ask him you got to go fishing with blaine for snakeheads larry you would love it yeah well we're gonna do a bunch of stuff when he gets down here but um so that kind of leads me you know invasive versus natural this is perfect kind of lead into this um so one of my one of the coolest stories you told me is about natural suckers and their environment versus store-bought suckers and how they relate to the predator and then in the in the environment you remember that story you told me that was like a really really and i, t I talk about that and all the a lot of the talks I, I give that right there to me is a prime example of of teaching anglers how predator and prey relationships are and you know you know the story that i'm talking about do you want me to give a little bit more into that um, was that the, about the walleyes? No, this was about um, when you when you were doing studies on how, like, if you caught a sucker in the in a river, trying to catch suckers to go catch yeah. muskies. Yeah, this is. I'll tell you. The, yeah, where I first ran into it was walleyes, and it's maybe even a better example. Okay, we had a guy in town. I won't say his name, but he was like the greatest fisherman in the world that's ever lived in history. He like invented fishing, <laughs> and uh, but he <laughs> and he could catch more with one hand tied and so on. And he only used artificial uh, lures. He was a jig fisherman, and he specialized in walleyes. And he was a really, really good angler. But he only fished with jigs, and he did not was not a live bait angler. And he was telling me that it was impossible right now, and his son fished with him too, and impossible right now to catch a, a walleye in this, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I, I was going to show him something, and... Uh, I had a like a dozen uh, sucker minnows that I bought at the, you know, Andy's bait store, and then I had gone and uh, netted a bunch, and they're oh, as big around as your thumb. So what would that be? You know, like four, five inches long, maybe. You know, a fairly good size uh, sucker, maybe yeah, four and a half, five inches long. And we pull into this pool. and you know he's throwing his uh, jigs, and I'm just you know fooling around. I've got a single. Uh, uh, 37160. That's a Kaylee style uh, hook. It's a wide gap hook, very very small. And I take the one of the store bought suckers, just hook him so lightly, a couple of split shot, six pound test mono, flip it upstream, let it come through the pool, floats through. It's big boulders and kind of medium speed water. Water's low, close to the pool. Nothing, nothing. And then Ronnie, watch. And I take one out of the other bucket hook them exactly the same and they look the same other coloration might be the tiniest bit different you know but size wise identical make the cast and you can see my rod tip as this you know this thing is approaching where the boulders are in this pool and then you see the rod tip going bing, 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 boom, because my sucker minnow was going oh shit and boom boom walleye hook another one Boom, 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 same thing and say, now watch, you go back to the 
Sacramento's that were out of the store. Flip it in, same cast, same everything, no bananas. And uh, I, I've seen it happen uh, with other species at other times where uh, the live bait does not react to the predator at the right time, so it does not get eaten. Uh, it can happen because the live bait is weak, or it could happen because the live bait just doesn't have enough, doesn't know what a predator is. And that comes down to, you know, some other things too. When uh, um, I break fish up into two groups and it's like a Venn diagram where, where there's actually an overlap. You have fish that eat bugs and fish that eat each other. And sometimes fish that eat each other will resort to eating bugs. Sometimes fish that normally eat bugs get big enough, they resort to uh, eating each other. The trigger that it takes when a fish has bug on his mind versus other fish on his mind is 180 degrees. Uh, if I have a fish like a smallmouth bass is a perfect example, a tarpon is a perfect example. He's laying stationary, he's pointing in a single direction where you have some current flow so you can predict. And you bring a weightless object into a cube of space, the same volume of which he would inhale when he takes a deep breath, and then twitch it, just twitch it, and then back into dead free drift. 99 times out of 100, he will go and eat it, and then he'll and spit it back out again. And you have to have a drag free dead drift for that to happen so you don't feel it, you see it. And it's just that it was in that window. It was a free meal. God tapped him on the shoulder, said, pal, take a deep breath or you're going to starve to death. The, the other, and you've seen it happen a hundred times. I know you have with steelheads. Uh, and I say, and tarpon and many other, and uh, in saltwater, a crab to me is, that is a saltwater insect. You know, he, he doesn't have the ability to swim like a fish can. And so all of those life forms uh, that fit into that category where the current winds, uh, if it gets too strong, they fit into that have to hit the window and the how big is the window it's as big as he can take in with a deep breath now on the other hand we've got a fish that's got teeth grasping seizing teeth as opposed to the sandpaper teeth of the species that i'm talking about that are likely to be in that insect uh, thing most of the time then oftentimes it's the fact that the predator said oh or the prey said oh shit it's a predator i'm getting out of here and that's what caused him to get eaten you know so many times you can have be fishing with live bait and you give it a sweep or you give it a, a twitch it gets hit uh trolling a lure uh when it hits a bounces off a rock and has a random non-mechanical action often triggers a strike and those are the two opposite sides of the spectrum uh you know yeah well that kind of that kind of leads into you know doug hannon you you know you told me to go check him out and and i remember watching him when he had that little bit on the, around the same time you had your show back in the day um about who you would really admired and you thought was really onto something about how um he studied bat largemouth bass and uh he had these two things triggering qualities and attracting qualities um and 
that that's that was a huge eye opener on on really what what fish and how they feed and you know non mechanical and mechanical movements and you know uh, what makes a fish do this or that um, you know and I and I think you've made your whole career all based on that on and, and you did it in your own way but uh, I mean. Could you share a little bit on what your your thoughts are on all that kind of stuff? Uh, Doug and I became friends the moment we met. I was the first person ever to put him on TV when I was producing In Fisherman. Uh, uh, and he, he was just really an intelligent, objective angler that had no superstition. And Doug fished with live bait 99.9% of the time in these little Florida lakes and so on. And Doug was an observer uh, and no magic. Uh, Buck Perry, I think I was, I mentioned Buck Perry to you, the guy who invented uh, the term structure and cover and, you know, the, yeah. the, the basics of habitat and how fish use it. But uh, yeah, the, Doug just had no, uh, no superstition. And uh, the way he broke things down, uh, uh, very simple, very clear. Uh, uh, but I think Big Bass Magic is a book that uh, has most of that stuff in it, as I remember. Uh, I miss him a lot. But his main deals, you know, the the in my view, uh, he talked about um, uh, trigger things that trigger versus things that attract. And I think that's often an important distinction. And sometimes they work counter to one another that the more attracting power it has, it might not, not have the triggering power because the fish maybe gets a, too good of a look at it. It's like uh, not to be believed. Um, I think another, I'm not sure if this was Doug's, but another in the whole, if you look at the whole world of fishing, things that, that matter and things that you need to, Things that you have been told and things that are commonly accepted, a lot of those things you have to throw away in order to think uh, clearly. And um, the most maybe important one is that um, matching the hatch uh, is such a big deal universally. Uh, as we move up the food chain and we get into... Uh, fish that are higher in the food chain. Uh, there's another quality that's very important, and that is um, uh, the role of a high-end predator to select out things that don't belong there. And so uh, there is this thing that is stuck in a fish's head from the minute he's born. Um, uh, and this you know, might seem like it isn't connected, but it is. Um, you could take the tiniest fish there is and take a piece of pencil eraser and throw it in the water and he'll eat it. And then he'll spit it out and he'll sample it. And then, you know, we, Blaine, you and I have talked about this. You take a booger and he'll probably eat it because it's got nutrition. So they grow up as samplers from the moment they're babies. And then they, but the the, the next time you throw the eraser in, he doesn't even he won't sample it anymore. So they remember positive and negative uh, on their samplers, sampling. And then as uh, you get higher and higher up the food chain, 
you've got this object coming through the water that might exhibit certain traits that have been sampled successfully. It wiggles like this thing and it looks like this or doesn't look like that, but I've never really seen one before. And so I'm going to sample it. Uh, and then as you get higher up, even in the food chain, things that are out of place, like a terrestrial creature that falls in is very likely to get eaten in a river that has a taimen or a muskies or pike or whatever. Uh, so it isn't matching the hatch isn't always the, the, the answer. Sometimes just uh, throwing them something they've never seen before uh, can be more effective even. I, I would agree that, you know, if they, um, I mean, why else would they eat a Medusa? Right. <laughs> it's like, what is that? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> year in and year out, people are like, you know, telling me they caught their biggest muskie on a Medusa. And I'm like, that it drives me crazy that people catch fish on that thing. I hate it. I just love <laughs> it's it. like, I love it. I it's just, ugh. see, I, I don't, don't know, ever, man. I don't, I, I, I never ever fish with anything even close to uses that many calories. And so yep. the fact that other people find it necessary makes me feel like uh, it, <laughs> it makes me think like I've got a whole lot left in me. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you kind you kind of do. You're you're saving calories, right? That's right. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of work. That's a whole lot of work. Um, well, you know, part of part of that thing with uh, with the triggering and uh attracting qualities i mean that kind of brings me to lore making and yeah, obviously you've had an incredible career designing a lot of um, amazing things um and I, and I bounced a lot of ideas off of you and when i was trying to create like a glide style fly and um you know i was like you know i'm having this problem here and and, and this is kind of coming to that jerk changer you know that we i mean I, i'll give you full credit for helping me design that because, you know, you kind of gave me that aha. It's like you told me and, you know, what, what, what do you think? Just explain what you think the drawbacks are to get a glide bait in the fly world. And, and I'll kind of come back after that and say, well, this is what gave me the idea based on what you told me. Um, it's the same problem as with it in any fly. There are two things you are fighting, weight and wind resistance, period. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's it. Right. Yep. Right. But you also talked about, like, uh, for me, which was my aha, once it got in the water, you know, obviously I'm, I'm targeting muskies on fly and kind of a bonehead um, for doing that because we're throwing big stuff and, and uh, you know, we could get into that whole uh, conversation, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of it's like taking a knife to a gunfight but but uh no, you know you know there's like you i know i know how you are it works smarter not harder kind of a deal you know there's a place for everything and i get it you know it's like well but we're throwing these giant flies to try to catch musky and you don't have to do that it's just what we choose to do and that kind of goes into your whole thing about the evolution of an angler which i love uh, yeah, I think you should share that. I mean, it's it's super important. I mean, let's talk about that a little bit, and then we'll go back to that. Well, I guess stage one is I want to get a bite. 
and then uh, I want to catch a limit, and uh, then I want to catch a big one, and then I want to catch one how I want to catch one. That's where you get to be a fly fisherman. And then the next stage after that is I want to watch somebody else catch one. Yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to go back to this whole glide thing and, and, and lure making, because I think that's probably the most interesting side of, uh, of this conversation with you, because, you know, you're such a, an amazing sounding board. And I mean, you've, you've experimented with all this stuff. And I always tell people is like, I've been able to, do the things I've done by making a lot of bad ones, you know, um, not afraid of failure or whatnot. But uh, one of the things that you told me when I was trying to create more of a glide fly, that not one that just turns in the water, but one that will actually slide. Um, you told me the biggest problem with the fly is there's too much pulse pulsing going on compression, which yeah, slows stuff drag, down, drag, yeah, drag. which creates drag. Yeah. So, that was like the aha moment. So obviously I need to create something that's rigid. I want to have a stiffer body, um, have, you know, have it to where it's more arrowhead shape, kind of maybe create some imbalances or whatnot on, you know, and that's where I added the rattle, but having a, uh, more of a, uh, that, uh, I guess stiffer front end, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, but, what it allowed, what I found out is like, you know, that whole compression kind of pulsing thing was the biggest problem with flies and, and creating a true glide. Because if you see a lot of the flies that they call jerk, jerk type flies or glide flies, or they're all made out of stuff that's going to pulse in the, in the water. And, and that, and you do get a, a turn left and right or up and down, but you don't get something that's might move it'll two stop. feet or a foot. No, no, it'll stop. Right. Yep. Yeah. It takes so energy to that, wiggle all of those fibers. Yeah. And, and that kind of goes back to some of the other stuff. Like, you know, for me, and this is going, I mean, this, and, you know, you're my biggest hero ever. And, uh, you know, watching you as a kid, I mean, it really opened up my eyes to being able to do what I'm doing today. And the whole Game Changers platform for me was based on Mr. Wiggly, you know, and, <laughs> and you be able to have, you know, having that crazy serpentine swimming action. And it's like, man, I've got to be able to create something like that. And just, just seeing that man and you're inspired. I don't know if you ever sat back and realized the things that you've done for this industry, not just fly, but the whole fishing industry. It's pretty amazing. And I want to thank you from everybody. You know, I really appreciate it. Well, I don't know what to say other than uh, thank you. Uh, I don't think it's been quite that much stuff, but. No, I think, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that people don't know. I mean, some of the things like the Seychelles, you know, I mean, he was, you know, one of the first people there. You probably the first person I re- ever called I remember that. Fish. I remember that show. And I remember he was using a bone crusher fly. And I went and I, and it took me like three weeks to find silicone legs in that color. Uh, and I started trying, I started tying little bone crusher flies. And I remember, he either caught, I th- I swear to God, I think I remember on the show that you caught two bonefish because you were using two flies. And yeah, I don't think I've ever. All day, long, all day long, two at a time. So that hurts even knowing that because I've never just, <laughs> that's never happened once in my life. But I remember that on the show and I was just like, 
are you kidding? Like, are you like, what is this? And you had the underwater shot of what the bone crusher fly was doing when you were just letting it set still. Really, I mean, I remember all this stuff too, Blaine, wow. from being no, yeah. a kid. I forgot about it till just now that uh, you guys are talking about. That was fun. That was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's the Seychelles is one of the most uh, sought after destination yeah. fisheries on the planet, and you're probably the know. first person that. Yeah, they didn't know they had bonefish there. The guy I was with was studying the fisheries of uh, the Seychelles. He thought they were milkfish. And uh, they hadn't even been in that. They weren't looking at those areas, but that's, uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, not only that, I mean, all these other fisheries that you've opened up, man. I mean, you, it's just it's just one thing after the other. It's just, uh, you know, I mean, like Wollaston, like when you and I were up there, I mean, you, you know, even up in Alaska with the uh, whole pike fishery up there with the uh, midnight sun thing. I mean, you're a big part of getting that going. You know, it's, you know, there's so many different things that you've done and, and just broaden this, the whole sport, especially the travel destination stuff. I mean, it's, it's just one thing after the other that people don't realize that, you know, that you are a part of or, or created. I mean, that's, that's the stuff that, that a lot of us, like Tony and I, that's followed your career, we do know. And I obviously do because, you know, we're buddies and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's really amazing and we all really appreciate it. Oh, I, and I appreciate, know Tony. You saying, appreciate you saying that. Sometimes I sit here and I think it isn't even real. You know, I'm 73 years old. And uh, the guy I fish with, uh, my buddy Chris Willen, is exactly half my age. Uh, he turned 36, uh, I think, two, three days ago. I just was thinking about that. Yeah, he's exactly at my age. And I think back, though, I, I think been in 89 countries or 87 countries. And I think back these memories, and was I really there? Was that, it doesn't even seem real. I never left. I never planned. I grew up in a town that uh, was the largest town at the county. It had a population of 931. The next town is about 20 miles away. And I had everything I needed right there. I didn't think I would ever, ever have any reason to ever leave that spot ever as long as I live. So uh, I had no plans. Uh, you asked me earlier what my plan was. Well, <laughs> I never planned on leaving Burnett County. Uh, yeah. Well, I know I the whole fishing community is, <laughs> is grateful that you did leave there, you know, uh, and, and, you know, from from in fishermen to uh being a fly fishing sales rep larry what's the what's the what's the uh, this is this is interesting to me because i you know i think one of the things that me and blaine have in common the most is like we we first of all we appreciate fish that other people think are garbage you know, like Blaine and I will be just as excited if we catch a big gar or bowfin or something like that. We have a deep appreciation for the for fish that aren't regularly appreciated. And um, as much time as I spend in saltwater, you know, the past 25 years growing up in Tennessee, I was I was landlocked. And and that's, you know, those are kind of my roots. Uh, all those oxbow lakes off the Mississippi and and uh and and kind of you know flooded cypress swamps and things like that so I, I i have a deep appreciation for freshwater fishing what do you think in all your travels pound for pound what's the strongest 
freshwater fish you come across. Just, I mean, just pull your arm out of its socket strong. I know. I well, That's hardly a fair question. Uh, Cause a lot's got well, to do I, with I'm the, not with known to ask fair yeah. questions, Larry. Well, um, <laughs> the fish that is the most athletic and the yeah. most impressive without question uh, is a tiger fish. No question. Okay. Peacock, not okay. even close. But will a really? tiger fish pull your arm out of its sockets? No. Uh, will, uh, you know, uh, if I, I would hook you up uh, to a 14 foot long sturgeon who has pectoral fins as big as your upper body or bigger, um, he will not swim at one tenth the speed that the tiger fish will, but he will drag you and your boat and your anchor and all sorts of other things. Um, if you get the right angle on him, if you get right straight above him and slightly ahead of him and put uh, about one twentieth of his weight pressure on him, you can get him to come up. Yeah. Yeah. But I, tiger fish, but a tiger fish, that's, he's the guy. He's got a motor. The tiger fish has got a tail shaped like a tarpon that's that's uh, 25, 30% bigger per his body size than it is for most uh, other freshwater fish. And they can swim so fast. It's just remarkable how fast they can swim. So I'd, I'd put that's him wild. up there. Yeah. So you're talking about the big Goliath? Uh, tiger fish. The tiger okay. fish. Yeah, tiger fish. Like the barb, like the barbel run, the barbel run in Africa, yeah, but, right? But they, have, they just... but they have Goliath tigers, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, no. tiger yeah. fish, there's at least a half a dozen different species of tiger fish. Um, yeah. uh, the ones that are what about resident, wolfies? Uh, wolfies don't have nearly the speed, uh, but they have the uh, biting power. Uh, tiger fish are designed to bite a hunk out. Uh, they're designed to be able to eat fish that are two-thirds their own size if they have to. Uh, many of the species that live in uh, that type of river have to be that way because it could have two or three seasons where you don't get a, a, a high water, so you don't get a spawn, and you lose a, a prey base uh, niche. And so these fish have evolved to be able to eat uh, prey that's just gigantic. And yeah. that's that's what the deal is. But that's about, you know, look at his body shape, look at his motor, you know, it's like anything else. It's amazing because so yeah. many, so many of those fish, they look like minnows, right? Tarpon, tiger fish. They have that same, they have that same body shape as a, you know, a herring. Um, a herring. Well, a, t a tarpon does what a tiger fish really doesn't. No, no, the tail, the dimensions, the whole, it's, it's a lot different. They're shiny, but no. <laughs> well they got that going for them yeah what's um, interesting the uh you, you look at you know we have this misconception i hear all this stuff about uh pike muskies especially being ambush predators and sure you know every hunter uses ambush but he's built for high-speed pursuit in open water he's a long thin animal that can accelerate at a straight direction really really fast a bass or a short-bodied creature he's made to turn a corner in fact uh when a bass bites he's usually already going the other way you know when you uh felt him you know it's woof, and also like that and so uh what i was getting at is that that body shape gives you a lot of clues sometimes too that that 
Well, that kind of leads me into this. When you decide to design a lure for certain species or whatnot, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do you look at the biologic makeup of that fish and that there's built-in triggers is what I like to call of that type of fish on their makeup, like say bucket mouth feeders versus Caesars grab, you know, grabbers like pike and muskie and whatnot. Um, for me, I've, I've always kind of tried to look at it like this is like, you know, what are those biologic designs in that fish? And you know what I mean? Like, so, I bet you know, I muskies. To, I go back to the, do they eat bugs or do they eat each other? When it comes yeah. to the eat bugs, then I want to have something I can execute with a dead drift that might be hinged uh, to make it look more realistic. Uh, when it comes to eating each other, uh, then it comes down to being able to operate at the widest possible range of speeds. And then uh, I might play with size uh, more than I would with color and little odd little uh, changes in the pattern or the what, you know, a human might see. I'd be looking at... Uh, um, making it operate at a wide, wide range of speeds, or maybe having it, uh, what it, what it does, not what it looks like. What does it do? Um, right. Yeah. Like, like showing profile, like gliding or sliding that kind of non-mechanical actions yeah. versus mechanical, yeah. that kind of stuff. The, the, the stuff that, uh, for example, the lures, uh, that have the best glide, uh, you can't even, uh, you can, kind of come like not very close but so sort of with a fly for example okay a zara spook kind of goes flop 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 but it doesn't glide it'll go maybe glide three or four inches and that's great if you can get that out of a fly the lures that i'm using some of them will glide i'll give it a pop it'll go four feet to the left and then I'll go and give it a pop and it'll go eight feet to the other side. Cause it's off of center. You know, it starts at center, right. And then it'll go four feet left and then it'll go eight feet and only come forward four inches and give it another snap eight feet to the other direction, but it only came forward four inches, snap it again, another eight feet. So I've got 24 inches of movement and I've got 16 inches of distance that I've moved away from that predator. Uh, that's, and then on the corner, when you're getting that kind of a violent uh, and that kind of energy uh, movement, when that turns a corner, the noise it makes underwater is significant. And uh, it's a type of a trigger that is unique in uh, all of the lure stuff that I know. And it's one of those like super magic type type things when it comes to a, a lure. Uh, most lures, yeah. you know, you show me one lure, they, have, they bite on this. I will show, show you 10 other lures they will also bite on. It's like, look at it. What are the qualities of this thing? Uh, yeah. There are very few lures that are really 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 unique and uh those are the often the ones that are the most productive on fish that are goofy muskies are goofy uh stripers could be goofier than hell you know as they go through the cycle of their uh their their feeding thing uh oh yeah uh, and they the triggering things uh, stripers are really a good fish to, i think to to test lures with uh and you you see 
you know, they get chasing and you see what it is that they, they chase. And if they're really, if you get them going really good on something, then start changing lures, find out what they won't bite. That's always fun to learn too. Sure. Sometimes. Well, I mean, I mean, we're, t we're talking about your wide glide right there. I mean, that thing is amazing. That, yeah, that, how... yeah, that, that type of lure is, is a magic lure. It was in, developed by a guy named Eddie Oss, like a million, not a million, you know, sometime back in the fifties or sixties. Uh, made out of rock maple and uh, if you get one of those and you know how to operate that type of allure for many species it is it's freaking magic yeah it's kind of like that dock that dock bait that they're using up in new england now is that mm -hmm. you familiar with that i think that's what it's called dock yeah so a couple of our uh actually our board member uh in massachusetts jamie boyle who's kind of you know not kind of is the premier guide up in uh up in Martha's Vineyard. They found the dock as it was a it was a giant musky, you know, Zara spook walk the dog type of deal. And I gotta tell you, I've seen I've seen those guys work that damn dock for stripers, and when they're not gonna hit anything else. They will smack the stuffing out of that dock, and Blaine and I, Blaine and I were up in Cape Cod in May, and we watched, we watched these guys, these northern boys, throwing that thing, and we were Blaine and I were hucking flies like there was no tomorrow, <clears throat> and man, they were they were drilling that dock. Uh, Blaine caught one of the longest bluefish I have seen in a month of Sundays that day. Um, I got a couple of decent stripers, but there were some But that, big that fish. was on the same style fly that yes. that dock would. Yeah. It, it was on the jerk changer. It was gliding, yes. sliding. Yep. yep. Same deal. So I was trying to ma match what that was, but uh, that dock is basically a wide glide. I mean, it's the same, same thing, you know, just white. It's got that boat, that bone white or bone, whatever. It's that bone color. That's like, yeah. you know, yeah, I think it's a surface bait though primarily yes. right it floats if yep. you stop it it floats yep. right yeah floats yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah but it's but it's like a wide glass yes. it's just yes, right, right on the surface yeah yep. super yep. cool but that's yep. a great that's a great bait um but that's a, a good example but, of one of these things that it's a trigger that is just somehow it's magic you can it's one of those rare kind of semi-magic deals and there aren't many of them i told blaine yeah. when we got off blaine and i were on separate boats and when when we met up, I think for dinner that night, I just looked at him and I was like, man, get to work. You got to do a dock fly, man. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. Like, that's the secret sauce. Uh, you Problem know, is you won't be able to cast the damn thing. You can't. Yeah, you need a, <laughs> you need a rocket can't. launcher. There's two things. You can't. It, too much weight. Uh, in order to have maximum glide, you have to be right about at the same specific gravity as, as uh, water. And so the fly would just ha just has to be too heavy. And then, uh, you know, the other thing, uh, <laughs> the stiffness, when you get the, you have to have a really stiff rod. When you pop that thing, if you're going to make it work to its absolute maximum, it's got to be that bam. And then you give it slack and it just isn't, it's just why even try. I, I was talking to somebody uh, earlier today um, about, uh uh fly rods and uh i 
uh, we were talking about uh, um, two weights and zero weight. I was told they exist as zero weight. And I was thinking to myself, um, uh, uh, you know, if I take a four weight fly rod and put a long leader on it, tapering down to six or seven or eight X, I would bet that I can deliver a fly with less disturbance than somebody with a two weight who's just fighting to just get the head out because it's such a pain in the butt. To, and I thought, why would, you know, why would anyone do that? It's like, <laughs> if I have a great big, huge screw and I have a big screwdriver that fits just right, that I can put right in there and unscrew it. I say, no, no, I'm going to take the screw that was designed to take the screw out of my eyeglasses and I'm going to unscrew it with that. That's really stupid. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, it's smart. I ain't. I mean, guilty, yeah. guilty as guilty as charged. Oh, smart, I can't I ain't. help it. Like, yeah. I, I mean, what do you, we're fishermen? What do you a, want? There's a point no. where you just have to understand that you don't even, you know, if you want it, find another way. Yeah, but you are with that fly rod. I don't give a shit what you do. You're limited when your speed. There is. I can take a bait casting rod or other methods and move lures at eight, nine, 10 miles an hour. And there are times that that's effective. Um, there are times that I want to be able to bump a lure in 20 feet of water and have it go banging on the bottom or 10 feet of water. And I wanted to do it at five or six miles an hour. And sometimes that's the most effective way there is to catch what, what you're after. So does that mean, well, I want to use my fly rod. Hmm, I wonder what I should do. Don't even think about it. That's what Larry, you should do. Level four, <laughs> buddy. Yeah. That I, I'll, re I'll rewind this podcast. We've ascended to level four. We just want to catch them the way that we want to catch them. I know. For, we're, we're not putting yeah. we're not putting the video up. It was Larry's oh, wincing in pain right now no, on the no, video. No 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. You said you want to catch them the way you want to catch them. The key word was catch. Okay. Yeah. Trying to catch <laughs> and catching are two different things. I'm talking catching. Yeah. There's a, point where you're waste, there's a point where you're just simply wasting their time, your time. And to, to recognize that's important. So you can push the envelope in places where the envelope might be pushable, really. Oh, well, there's definitely been times where I feel like I was a hamster in a, in a wheel. And, and just, that's how you just learn. Going, you know, that's how you learn. Oh, but yeah. You don't keep it in your head against the wall. Just because yeah. I want to do it on a, uh, you know, doing it on a fly rod and doing it on a fly, fine. If it's on fly, you got to be able to cast it. So keep keep trying, you know. So it's just a dumb dumb argument. What's fun is uh, is is when you ring the doorbell and the fish answers, and I want him to exactly. answer so, so I can see him. I don't want to just feel him. I'd much rather have him so I can see him. And I like it even better if I see him ahead of time because of my heart is beating even before I make the cast, and then I want him to swim up and eat it. And then we'll move on from there. Do it again. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the beauty of it all. I agree. I, yeah. I would love to be able to do that every day. Yeah, that's for sure. But yeah, well, that's what you do. You're but, a guy. Uh, You're hoping. Yep. Yeah. You're hoping. That's, yeah. 
eternal optimist, right? Just always, it's going to happen, guys. Keep casting. They're They're here. They're here. Yeah, they're there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great example of, uh, of fishing in general, but you know, um, that it, I could be talking about so many different things now that just gave me this, like, with all the new electronics out there. I mean, I don't, I'm not even going to go, I'm not going in that. I'm not going there. Uh, I would love to maybe talk to you more later on with maybe Tony, maybe we could have it back if maybe get some other type of discussions, but we've been going for a while and uh, you know, I've got a guide tomorrow and I know I'm sure you guys are getting tired too, but uh, um, Larry, I mean, I love you, man. And um, you know, I'll never forget that time when we were at Wollaston and I was like, I really appreciate you letting me, ride on your coattails and you immediately said no uh you're just standing on the shoulders of those who came before you and i really appreciate you having such wide shoulders because you really helped us all well like i said thank you for saying that blaine i, I really do appreciate it and uh pleasure's always mine yep i know it i appreciate it man well so, i feel uh, a, I, I feel a follow-up thing coming here maybe in the next couple of months um you know larry uh i certainly don't don't know you like blaine does but you know like i told you before we started this podcast man it was it was shows like yours and uh walker's k and 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 spanish fly that really uh really got guys like me and blaine through some really crappy winters where there wasn't much to catch and you know we were the coolest thing about fishing for me and the day that this is not true, I'll sell all my stuff, but, uh, I enjoy, I enjoy learning every time I'm out there and picking up something new. And I don't know a lot of sports that you can do that. Um, you never really master it. You learn, you learn something new every day and it. And as soon as you think you're good at it, it humbles you. Um, and it's just, man, it's just one of those things that, uh, like you said, that guy that you didn't mention his name was the best fisherman ever and catch more fish than you with one hand tied behind his back. I don't ever fish with those people. I love fishing with people that, that, uh, that, that just are students of the, of the, of the skill and, and just, it's not a comp. It's never a competition. It's competition with the fish. It's never a competition with anyone else. And man, I learned a lot on this podcast. I, I sincerely appreciate everything that you taught me, even though you didn't know you were teaching me over the years. Um, you know, and I, I know you left an imprint on thousands and thousands of anglers uh, throughout the years that feel the same, uh, feel the same about you that I do. So from all of us to you, you know, thank you very much for always giving to yourself and your knowledge and your time. And, and uh, my buddy, my buddy lefty said, all the time knowledge that isn't shared is wasted and uh and i don't know too many people who have shared their knowledge more than you so from the whole fishing community to you thank you very much um we really enjoyed having you on this podcast and and everything that you've done for the sport and look forward one day to having you on here again pleasure is mine you guys keep up the good work and uh, blaine we're going to be getting together here i hope pretty soon thanks yeah, for having hope me so, man. Good night, Thank you. you. See you. You too.